You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hey, I'm Will, and they call me the doctor. And I'm Joe, the maestro. We host a podcast called Common Creatives, where we break apart the art we love to see what makes it tick. Basically, we give you the definitive take on whatever or whoever we're discussing. You don't need to go anywhere else. So check out Common Creatives wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, as always, before we get started, we just have a few pieces of housekeeping. First, One of the best ways to support this show is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts that tells our digital overlords that the show is worth sharing to new people. So I will read a five-star review. This is from Grace Ewitt from Great Britain on Apple Podcasts, and they say, Really interesting and authentic podcast, full of honesty and heart and quite funny, too, at times explores tension well, and I look forward to every episode. Very sweet, short and sweet, and I so appreciate it. And if you have just five minutes to write a review, if you enjoy the show, if you look forward to it every Saturday morning, then please consider writing a review. Also, another really great way to support the show is to support me directly on Patreon.com. You can go to Patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for a dollar, three dollars, five dollars a month, you get extra content every week. You get access to my live stream podcast, House of Heretics, with the former Salvation Army officer, Timothy McPherson, turned Christian heretic. And we talk about all sorts of things from politics to religion to film, whatever's going on in the world that week. And finally, this show is sponsored by TheSatanicTemple.tv. If you are into the occult, into ritual, into lectures, live streams, conversations, there is all kinds of fascinating stuff going on at the satanictemple.tv. TST has an incredibly creative and interesting community, and they're doing all kinds of stuff over on that platform. So you get one month free by using my promo code SACREDTENSION, all caps, no space, at checkout. All right. Well, with all of that finally out of the way, I'm delighted to welcome Bridget Eileen Rivera to the show. Hello. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, I, I expect that this might be a different type of podcast than you're used to appearing on, which is great. That's wonderful. Um, so before we get started, tell us some about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so, um, uh, well, we already said my name. My name is Bridget Eileen Rivera, and I do a lot of um, advocacy for LGBTQ issues in the Christian church. So uh, podcasts that I'm used to being on definitely tend to run in the conservative Christian vein of things, because that's kind of my, like, my focus uh, is really speaking to conservative churches that are in the more kind of traditional realm of theology and belief and practice. I do a lot of uh, advocacy with churches that are, I guess, kind of just still figuring it out with LGBTQ issues and not quite sure what to do with themselves or what to think or how to do things. Um, So I I do a lot of um, advocacy in that realm. And I'm currently getting my PhD in sociology. And I just wrote a book that just came out in October called Heavy Burdens. Am I hearing a creature causing havoc in your room right oh now? Oh my gosh! It's a, it's totally so no 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 don't sorry. don't feel bad. We adore pets. We <laughs> okay. we love animals on this Wonderful. show. Wonderful. So Wonderful. <laughs> at least once 
during at each show an animal interrupts the podcast. So it's great. Anyway, yeah. so you have a fantastic book. It is called Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBT People Experience Harm in the Church. Did I get the title right? Yes, so that is the title. I have been reading it. I am also in it. I will out myself. <laughs> I will out <laughs> myself as one of the people who is in your book. And also, thank you so much for, you know, being willing to come hang out with a bunch of degenerates like us, a bunch of Satanists and pagans and atheists. I really appreciate it. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I, um, I think I told you this the first time we ever spoke. I did not know much about Satanism prior to speaking with you, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and then after talking, that kind of like, you know, sparked a lot of curiosity uh, for me because, you know, I just hadn't really known much about it. But prior to meeting you, the only thing that I really knew about Satanism was just this brilliant thing. And I'm, oh, I'm so sorry. That's my dog <laughs> in the background. Um, normally she's, normally she's sleeping around this that, time. It's totally so fine. I think I it's adorable. Know. No, it's, it's I she love knows, ambient She knows that I'm pet, having this. Ambient pet sounds are great. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but yeah, the only other thing that I had ever known was this amazing thing that happened in Oklahoma, where like Oklahoma had had this like whole thing saying we're gonna have the 10 Commandments. <laughs> That's right. On yes. Our courtroom doors or whatever. And so like the local Satanists erected yep. a statue of Satan. That, that's Sa us. Satan. <laughs> that was us. It. That was oh yeah, gosh. that was that was ba that was the Baphomet. Uh, statue uh, uh it, yeah. yeah that was us that that's the satanic temple we are we're known for a lot of our political activism but yes yeah. perfect well i'm i'm glad that that left a good taste in your mouth i'm I'm glad, I'm glad that that you appreciated that i did i very much did and it um just in general has like made me i think just more interested in learning more i guess perfect well, as as a minister of Satan, I am obligated to answer everyone's questions about Satanism. So any any time you have a question, just let me know. Um, but, you know, your book is I just have to say this about your book. It is incredibly lucid and well written. So congratulations on writing a like an impressively well written book, because I have read an unspeakable number of books in this genre in, in kind of this niche subgenre of faith and sexuality, because that is the world that I come from. That's how I got my start as a writer. That's how I, you know, got my name out there as a content creator was covering this issue. So I have read an ungodly number of books. And honestly, your book is just it's it's lucid. It is to the point. It is incredibly well written. So congratulations on having written a very, very good piece of writing. Well, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. What is, so, so you, I think probably come from a different background than I do. And so you are from, I, I guess what we would call more of the, the traditional ethic, mm -hmm. tr traditional Christian ethic. Whereas I am not, I'm, I'm kind of, um, before I left Christianity, I was fully on board with not with not being celibate. <laughs> but I think that our principles here kind of unite us in that what we both want is for LGBT people to experience less harm in religious settings. And so even though we might be coming to this from different theological backgrounds and different different priors, I think that, and at least the sense that I get while reading your book is, oh, we actually have a lot of overlap. We have a lot of shared values in, in not wanting to perpetuate harm among young LGBTQ people. So I think that we can kind of move forward with this conversation with that understanding that we have that that those shared values and shared goals. So one of the really interesting things about your book, you you start the first part of the book is about celibacy 
and the ways in which the church sets LGBTQ people up for failure when it comes to celibacy. And you you have this approach to it that I haven't really heard before, which kind of ropes in the Reformation and, and the Reformers. Could you talk some about that? Yeah, so that's exactly where the book starts. I start with the Reformation, um, and I kind of take that as ground zero to understanding why we are where we are today. And I do that because the Reformation really represents a focal point for how most Protestants and even lay Catholics, uh, not necessarily the Catholic Church, uh, but I would say many, if not most, like Catholics understand sexuality. The Protestant Reformation represents a turning point in that Martin Luther introduced the idea that sex is necessary, that sex is an essential part of what it means to be a human being, uh, and that denying someone sexual activity is akin to denying them food or water or the basic necessities of life. This is not really recognized uh, very much in in Christian circles, if at all, uh, because I think the focus is typically on this idea that Martin Luther got rid of the requirement for priests to be celibate. That's typically how it's talked about. Um, what's never necessarily acknowledged is that is how Luther got rid of this requirement for priests to be celibate. <laughs> he, he really. So in other words, he really launched like a sexual revolution. Yes. The, and that's what I call it in my book. I the call Reformation. It the yes. Yeah, yes. I call it the Protestant sexual revolution because that's what it was. And so what was the view of sexuality prior to Luther revolutionizing the vision of sex, our our understanding of sex as kind of an essential component of human nature. So in the West, prior to Luther coming onto the scene, it was very much the understanding of sexuality was very much dominated by medieval Catholic thought. Um, and medieval Catholic teaching Um, taught that uh, sex was the vehicle through which original sin passed down from parent to child to grandchild. And so um, this teaching had evolved over the centuries until it got to a point where sexual intercourse was understood to be a sin in uh, almost... All sexual, almost, even yeah, all even in a sexual. married, even yeah. even in the married setting. Yeah. Okay. Even marital sexual intercourse was considered to be almost always sinful unless you could accomplish the sexual act apart from sexual desire. Because if you had sexual desire, then you you were. Um, engaging in carnality, you were engaging in the flesh. And so sexual intercourse had to be accomplished apart from sexual desire. By the time of Luther, there were all of these laws, all of these restrictions, all of these limitations on when you could have sex. Uh, When you first got married, you, you know, had to um, have a time where you consummated the wedding vows, but then you were also expected to not have sex for a period thereafter. Um, there were only certain days during the week where you could have sex, all other days which were Which off. days, which days were you allowed to have sex pre-Reformation? You know, I'm not, I'm not recalling exactly um, because again, it was extremely complicated. And this is one of the things that I talk about in my book. Um, it was extremely complicated to figure out when you could have sex um, mm. because you could not have sex on any um, days where mass like was held that, you know, the holy service was being held. So Sundays were off. Wednesdays were off. I think Thursdays were off too. probably high holy days as well. And yeah, any yeah. any holy day, no sex was allowed because it's mm. a holy day. So you mm-hmm. can't be having sex on a holy day. Um, but then there were also like 
you know, exceptions to this during certain times of year. So like during Lent, you could not be having sex at all, Hmm. period. Um, There was just like this whole maze of rules and regulations around sexual activity. Again, all to restrict it to the point where sex was not happening unless you were going to have a baby. Um, All to like prevent people from having sex. Um, to make sure that sex was happening as little as possible. And when you did have sex, you could not actually want to have sex. The purpose had to be just functional, just to have a child. And that was it. Now, whether or not people followed these rules is like a whole nother question. Um, I, I think it's, it's pretty well established historically that most people didn't because it was impossible. However, um, if you uh, were really trying to be pious, if you were really trying to follow the church, um, then you would. And when you broke, you would try at least. And when you broke the rules, you would just be filled with extreme shame, extreme fear for your soul. And it, it would be just this very kind of fearful, like, oh my gosh, like, I have sinned. I should not have had sex. And grace, um, has, and grace that, has died within you until your next confession. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and this was the case for everyone. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It's just how it, it's how it was understood. Now, now, uh, just because I'm curious, and we're kind of going off on a tangent, but I just find this so fascinating. Was I assume that these sexual prohibitions were applied to everyone, regardless of class? Is that right? So, yes. so everyone from so theologically from peasant all the way up to royalty, everyone had to follow this. Yes. Okay. Yeah. From a theological perspective. Yes. Um, you know, I think in terms of in terms of like how it was actually put in practice, there was and this is something that Luther criticized a lot. There was a lot of um, corruption in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you had a lot of money, then you could pay the church to like let you, for example, get married to someone that like you shouldn't get married to or like, you know, things like that. You could pay the church to make exceptions to whatever theological rules you were supposed to be following. So there were things like that going mm. on, right? Um, which Luther used as further evidence to show that these rules that the Catholic church had in place were just, were just corrupt. They were not from scripture mm. at all. It's fascinating. So, <clears throat> Luther kind of institutes this extraordinary sexual revolution where suddenly humanity and sexuality could be integrated to a degree. It's like you can, within the context of a marriage, you can enjoy sex, you can indulge in your lust for your spouse, and it is not sinful. You can indulge in that carnality as long as the container is correct. Uh Right. And that is revolutionary for the time. And then you kind of chart how this has continued to the current to the uh, modern day, how, you know, Protestants uh, celebrate sex and Uh how it is um, and and kind of the, the sensuality within the context of marriage is seen as essential it is seen as wonderful it is seen as joyous and all of these great things all of which i happen to agree with i think sex is pretty fucking great and (laughs) how how does this get turned though into a weapon against lgbt people maybe not deliberately but how does this end up hurting lgbtq people yeah well you know it's it's actually kind of interesting um And a a little bit lopsided because on the one hand, Luther is saying that sex is necessary and this becomes the logic for why um, divorce is okay in situations where um, a spouse is not able to sexually satisfy you. Because if you're experiencing sexual attraction, you can't be expected to be married to someone that you're not sexually attracted to Mm -hmm. um like you know this and so like sexual attraction takes this 
level of importance that it had never taken before in marriage. Now you're expected to actually marry someone that you're sexually attracted to. Um, and that's like seen as normal and like, of course, that's what you should do. And so uh, there's this new understanding of sexual attraction as not just being a good thing, but also being what compels us to have sex. Um, and so, you know, all of the like logic and groundwork is laid right then and there for um, the church to be like, okay, well, these people over here aren't sexually attracted to anyone of the opposite sex. Um, they're attracted to a person of the same sex. Okay, well, um, uh, we all just said that it's necessary to have sex with someone that you're sexually attracted to. So therefore, um, it should be okay. Um, all of the logic and the rationale is kind of laid there for people to just be okay with homosexuality. Um, but it actually, it takes, um, a different turn and, uh, it kind of, in a lot of ways gets caught up in, um, a lot of the colonial impulses that were going on at the same time, a lot of, uh, I guess, scientific racism that was happening at the time. Yes. Um, and so uh, because what, what we see happening is because Luther so intimately connected sexuality to human nature, he, he actually was the first to uh, propose this idea that um, human beings don't act sexual. Human beings are sexual. Like this is an essential component to human identity. And can I just say it's mm -hmm. sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. It no. was it is so illuminating for me reading your book because it it helped me understand where my ideas came from. And what I also appreciate about your book is you don't, at, at least so far in the book, you don't adjudicate as to whether it's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Instead, you're it's like you're a good sociologist and you withhold judgment <laughs> and you <Yeah>. and <laughs> you withhold judgment and you're just like, these are the ideas. Here's where they come from. Here are the positive and negative consequences. And and I just so appreciate that. And uh, so that's a further vote in favor of your book. So, no, it's, it's just incredibly <laughs> illuminating for me to trace these ideas and be like, oh, that's where because I that was my argument when I was mm -hmm. writing in 2013. That was my argument that celibacy is a heavy burden within the context that we are sexual beings. And so mm -hmm. and so it's it, literally hearing, you know, reading Martin Luther say like the exact same fucking thing. 500 years ago <laughs> yes, is yes. Uh, is incredibly illuminating for me. So anyway, yes. I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's fascinating. Yeah. And just to piggyback on that, that's the thing is like you read some of these arguments that were being used by the reformers and not just Luther, but Calvin and yes. like all of their proselytes. Um, and like their arguments sound a heck of a whole lot, very similar to the types of arguments that are made today in support for um, affirming same-sex marriage and Absolutely. For, for affirming same-sex relationships and all of these things. It's like, they sound so similar, like almost word for word. Yes, almost <laughs> word for word. And I, I do have a, a section in my book where I do a comparison. Yes, yes, you do. I remember that. It's so similar and it's wild. Like if I were to take Luther's words and like copy paste them onto Twitter um, and like, in, like instead like fill in the parts where he talks about marriage and just say gay marriage, like it would be like, it, it would be identical. Like yeah. people would be like, okay, she's making this argument. But anyhow, um, so to get back to the idea of um, sexual identity, Luther was really the first one to bring this to the world stage um, in the West, this idea that human beings don't act sexual, human beings are sexual. This is intrinsic to human identity. Um, and so that kind of arrived at the same time of colonial expansion happening, um, at the same time as the scientific revolution um, and the development of scientific racism. Um, and so the, 
idea developed that if you are sexually pure, then that reflects um, a pure human identity or a, a, um, a good human identity. Um, if you are a bad human being um, in any way, shape or form, then you are going to have a sexually impure identity. Like you are going to have a sexuality that is perverse in some way. Um, and so this led to the idea that people from uh, the Africa, African region, from uh, the Americas, indigenous people were inherently sexually perverse um, because they were not white um, and because their, because their identity was regressive, according to scientific racism, these these people were regressive human beings in some way. They weren't fully developed as far as the white race. And this was why they were inherently sexually perverse. And so basically a perverted human identity is reflected in a perverted human sexuality. Because according to Luther, we are sexual. Yeah, because so, we are sexual beings, your sexuality will reflect the type of human being that you are. Right. So so because of this marriage between sexuality and humanity mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. that Martin Luther brought in, you know, brought into existence through his re- reformation, you know, reformation, sexual revolution. That could be twisted by mm-hmm. scientific racism to basically be like okay well now sexuality is an essential component of humanity if someone is a sexual quote-unquote sexual deviant by western standards that means Mm -hmm. that they are an inferior human being yes yes exactly okay that is exactly what happened and so that just kind of developed and continued over generations until you get to freud and uh, freud develops his whole conception of um sexuality as an orientation and if you are heterosexual it's because you developed as a normal human being if you are homosexual or bisexual it's because there is something that um arrested your development something messed you up um and uh, that you know became the uh, um almost unanimous way of thinking about sexuality for um Many, many years, uh, people just, you know, Freud was so popular. He um, was so influential. Um, a lot of this stuff just became uh, just taken for granted. Um, uh, and so uh, this was what ultimately led to uh, the development of um, this idea that we could cure homosexuality, um, if we could um, identify what happened to this person in their development that messed them up and made them, you know, sexually perverted in some way, then we can fix them, we can undo whatever that was and make them normal. And so, you know, that led to all sorts of atrocities during World War II, a lot of experiments on gay people. There's a lot of horrible things, lobotomies, just really terrible stuff were done to gay people in the name of curing them to make them heterosexual. Um, and that ultimately is the precursor to the ex-gay movement yes. um, and conversion therapy, um, which you know promised to heal people um, based almost entirely on the same... Um, based almost entirely on the same framework developed by Freud, um, except with the added element of Jesus and prayer and spirituality (laughs) and Bible verses. Um, And so it's really interesting looking at conversion therapy manuals, ex-gay rhetoric. It's all Freudian word for word, all of it's Freud with, you know, added elements of Christianity added on top, you know, like we're going to pray or um, we're going to, you know, uh, ask God for healing and things like that. But at its 
at its heart is it's all relying upon this Freudian conception of human identity. So I survived the ex-gay world as a teenager and fucked me up massively, as can be expected. But you're exactly right. Like how old fashioned, Mm -hmm. (laughs) old, like it's like old psychoanalysis painted with a gloss of evangelical Christianity and uh, contemporary Christian music on top of it. At least that's the Mm -hmm. way that's the way Exodus International was. Yeah. And um, so one way in which the sexual the Protestant sexual revolution has shaped, you know, has led to harm against LGBTQ people is while there was what I think is the positive turn towards humanizing sexuality, scientific racism comes in and lays down the groundwork for villainizing human sexuality. It, mm-hmm. And and then that gets put onto LGBT people. So there's that way in which yeah. uh, LGBT people experience harm. Yeah. And then there's another way, which is... The thing that is deemed essential in the church is cut off from LGBT people. Mm -hmm. And this was my experience where, you know, I was surrounded by a culture of celebrating marriage and celebrating sexuality. I mean, the the Protestants have a reputation for being anti-sex. They are so very not. Yes, they, yeah. they, they are. They are the some of the most sexy people alive on this planet. Like they, they fucking love true. sex. And so I, I was just you know surrounded by this culture of sex and sexuality and marriage are the most, some of the most wonderful things on the planet. And guess what? By no choice of your own, you are barred from it. Mm-hmm. And it placed me, and not just are you barred from it, there is something fundamentally broken about you because of your orientation. There's something mm-hmm. fundamentally wrong and damaged. And, and you know, back when I was writing in 2013, I, I just encouraged people to consider the ramifications of that. Like, think about this. You are telling mm-hmm. a population the size of a country and in t- the, the size of an entire country worldwide. Mm-hmm. Do not marry. Do not date. Do not have sex. What are the what are the implications of that not just for them but for all of humanity mm-hmm. the the consequences are gargantuan for yeah. that it and um it it's it's cruel it's inhuman to not acknowledge mm-hmm. the the heavy burden of that at least yeah. that's my opinion no and i agree i i agree <clears throat> excuse me <laughs> I completely agree with you. Um, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. The church has this set up where what it tells people is the greatest thing in the world is like, you can't have it. Mm-hmm. And that's just that. And you're just going to have to figure out how to live and be happy without the thing that makes everybody else happy in their life and gives their life meaning. Because legitimately, when you're in church, Um, That's all anybody ever talks about giving their life meaning, their wonderful husband, their beautiful wife, their Mm -hmm. children, their grandchildren, and, you know, finding meaning in that, being faithful to um, your family and, you know, uh, that and like family first, all of these Mm -hmm. thoughts that like center around um, uh, being married to someone and having children and like those things. Um, are completely cut off from you. You can't have any of those things that we identify as being intrinsic to human happiness. And um, we're not going to bother helping you figure out what that means for your life either, because we don't care because it doesn't affect us. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, that's the end. (laughs) And, you know, 
part of, you know, I, I mentioned before we started recording that I'm, <laughs> I said half jokingly, like I'm teetering on the edge of like a mental health crisis right now. But that's the case every winter for me, mm-hmm. in part because, you know, Christmas and Thanksgiving were always holidays celebrating family. And so mm-hmm. it's like I have all of these nieces and nephews and all of my siblings are married and my parents are just like fawning. And and every Christmas, there was just this deep, deep, deep sense of being cut off from mm-hmm. that in a way that just made me want to crawl under the bed and die. And, you know, it was like my my internalized homophobia and self-loathing and shame just would flare up in this debilitating way Mm -hmm. during the holidays every single year because it's like it, it was like looking at looking at the world from solitary confinement through a glass window and it just destroyed me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, what you were saying, it isn't just the church. I mean, I, I forget where I read this and you would probably know more about this because you're the sociologist and I'm just an idiot with a microphone. But, um, you know, I've, I've read that some studies demonstrate that people who are partnered weather life crises better, that the social ties that come from being partnered when they get fired, when there's a financial crisis, when there's a death, when there is a, a, a whatever, people who are partnered tend to have greater emotional resiliency yeah. and bounce back faster. 100%. So, yeah. if, so if we live in a world where that, for good or for ill, is the case, mm-hmm. and then we set up zero support for mm-hmm. LGBTQ people while saying you can't have that. Uh, it, it is the epitome of what Christ said when he said you, when he accused the Pharisees of, of laying heavy burdens around the necks of people and then not lifting a finger to help them. It is yep. the definition of that. Yep. Yep, exactly. And that's, that's exactly what is, is going on um, in the church. Nobody um, would ever, like no straight person, have I ever spoken to would ever agree to the deal that is given to gay people in the church against their will. Yeah. Like I have not yet met a straight person who would agree to the deal that is laid down to gay people. And yet it is just the status quo for churches to nevertheless deny this thing that they would never accept for themselves to so many people. Um, And it's such a, I don't know, amazing example of how people are able to just tune out the needs of other people when it doesn't affect them. If I were to tell a straight person, um, no more sex for the rest of your life, or you will incur God's judgment, If I were to tell a straight person that they, and like the straight person believed me, um, like they would not be able to like live with themselves. Like I'm telling them that their entire life is invalidated. Um, And yet this is what is being told to gay people day in and day out. And it's just, it just doesn't make sense and especially doesn't make sense given the theology that Christians already have and believe. Um, And that's the thing that I was trying to show in my book is that like saying this to gay people, like denying these things does not make sense if you say that you believe xyz mm-hmm. like if you believe xyz then how can you say yep abc to the queer community like those two don't follow or how can you say that without expecting it to to be catalyzed into ferocious harm and rage in yeah. the L- in the lgbtq community which is exactly yes. what's happened and yeah, and i think it exactly. is entirely understandable 
mm-hmm. that that there is such rage. It's like, well, yeah. of course there is. When when there is this degree of when there is this degree of cognitive dissonance, the the end result of that is breaking. Yeah. It, there's no other way. Yeah, one hundred percent. One of the things that I uh, one of the, my favorite parts of the book, and it's, I guess it's my favorite part because it was my favorite thing to like piece together as I was writing it was, um, the section about sodomy, um, Mm. and how sodomy has been understood historically. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, it's really interesting to discover that sodomy was not defined as this homosexual act the way it is today. Like you hear someone tell someone that they're a sodomite (laughs) and um, they're talking about a gay person. Um, But like sodomy was understood um, for the most part as something that like straight people do. Um, Like that is a heterosexual sin when, um, and this gets back to the Catholic understanding of procreation being at the center. Yes. Um, if a husband and a wife um, had sex, but subverted the procreative capacity of that in some way to prevent mm. having a child, um, that was considered sodomy. Um, and that's how it was. That's so interesting. So long um, until we decided so like that understanding (laughs) so like so so i mean like not to get too like detailed but things like oral sex or pulling out or whatever anything Mm -hmm. or masturbation would that all be considered sodomy all of that was sodomy. that's so fascinating and like still still is sodomy by the official definition just not how by um okay that's yeah just yeah, just not how it's popularly conceived. I always understood sodomy to mean just anal sex, but it yeah, no, it's all forms, okay, all and of any non procreative sex. Mm-hmm. Okay, got yeah. it. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so who are the who are the people? If we're gonna go by how sodomy has under been understood by the church for most of church history, hmm. um, who are the people that are sodomizing? on the most regular basis. Well, it's straight people. (laughs) True. Disgusting perverts. Uh, (laughs) Gay people have nothing on them. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's true. Um, But, and like this just gets again to the double standards. Yes. Any and all verses that had previously been understood to be condemning sodomy as what straight people would do have now been glossed over. They've Correct. been reinterpreted like, oh, they didn't like, they didn't have the scientific advances that we have today. So now we know better. And it's like, okay, but if a gay person wants to have that same kind of conversation about same sex marriage, all of a sudden, no. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I, you, are personally committed to a life of celibacy and am i understanding that that right do you feel Mm -hmm. comfortable talking some about your own experience in your own life yeah sure what i really appreciate about you is you you seem to to and correct me if i'm wrong about this you seem to say i am personally i am personally dedicated to celibacy for xyz reason and here are the ways in which, for lack of a better term, mandatory gay celibacy has harmed people. And I perceive you as saying this is people have need to have the freedom to to understand what their own theology is. At least that's the vibe. That's the very strong mm-hmm. vibe that I'm getting. I, I, yeah. I think that. It would, so would you say that's correct? That, yeah, that's totally correct. So in your view, would you see gay marriage and gay sex as a disputable matter in theology, in Christianity? Oh, yeah. I think it totally is a disputable matter. And, um, and I would like I would say that with like a asterisk, because I do think that there are things that are not disputable matters. Like I think that. Mm-hmm. 
um, the types of ways that Christian theology has been used to like condemn anyone that is experiences their sexuality different and mm. like condemn them to like hell um, and like beyond God's grace. I think that um, is such a twisting of the gospel. I don't see that like, you know, as a disputable oh, you, matter. Yeah. Like, Absolutely. Oh, you know, you can be homophobic if that's what you believe. Like I more see it as, you know, when, uh, if you're queer and you're trying to figure out like how you want to live your life and, you know, how you want to express your faith in God. Um, and, you know, you're Christian and you're going to the Bible for guidance. Well, you're going to probably land on something that is different than someone else. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, because like, to me, the important thing is that a Christian who is queer has the freedom to like seek out the wisdom of God's word and follow God as they understand God to be speaking to them instead of like being told that there's only one correct interpretation to this whole very complex conversation. And if you don't fall in line, then you can't be mm. a Christian. You can't follow Jesus. And that strikes me as like, especially within the context of the traditional sexual ethic and Christianity as extraordinarily radical. Like it might not, it, I, I think that it's consistent. I think it's compassionate. I think it's right. But I also think it is an extraordinarily kind of radical. And, and I expect that a lot of conservative Christians would interpret that as like actually quite extreme. Um, yeah, I think people have a really hard time seeing it possible to like follow traditional ethics and mm -hmm. not condemn anyone else who doesn't follow those same ethics. Like, mm. because I think for so long, that way of living has been like intimately like caught up and all of the toxicity associated with homophobic belief systems. And so it's very hard for people to like, even imagine that like, yeah, this could like be something that doesn't require you to condemn other people. And I think a lot of conservative Christians do take issue with it for that reason, because they can't imagine holding a conservative belief in scripture unless everybody else is wrong and not a real Christian. <laughs> right, yeah. right. I think a few years ago, I would have been deeply threatened by it, honestly. Mm -hmm. And I was, <clears throat> I, you know, and, and I, A, because I came out of the traditional ethics. So I kind of moved from ex-gay to traditional ethic on mm -hmm. sexuality, committed to celibacy, and then moved to affirming of gay marriage and uh, got a boyfriend and the rest is history, right? So mm -hmm. I think that I I was intensely threatened by it because there was, I, I could not disassociate it. I could not disassociate the concept of, of celibacy and the traditional ethic from the intense harm that I have mm -hmm. experienced. And, you know, I, I like to think that maybe I've matured and mellowed out some and I'm very much and a lot of this actually has to do with the influence of the satanic temple on me where mm -hmm. it's like you know dedicated to plurality and there is a place for everyone as long as they don't infringe upon the rights of others and the worship of others um, yeah. and so I as a satanist I will never ever Ever infringe upon the theology, the beliefs of another human being. I will never infringe on their places of worship. I will never try to limit their freedoms as long as they don't do the same to me. Yeah. And so I'm I'm just like, you know, also the for the 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 third tenet is of TST is one's body is inviolable, subject to one's own will alone. 
And mm. so as as a Satanist who adheres to the seven tenets, I I have to support celibacy. If if mm. that is if I value bodily autonomy in the way that I do and the way that is central to my religious identity, then Absolutely. As long as it is not coercive, as long as it Mm -hmm. is freely chosen, as long as someone's bodily autonomy is not being violated in the process of choosing celibacy, then then I am 100% for it. And I want people to have a place where they can pursue that. And and Mm -hmm. so I think several years ago, I would have just been deeply stressed out and threatened by this entire conversation. But... Mm. But now I, I'm just like, no, you know, I, I think that there's a place. There should be a place for people mm-hmm. to pursue their their theological convictions as long as it is not done in a coercive manner. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's kind of where I stand on. Yeah. And on I that. think I, uh, I I think we completely agree because, you know, people if people are not given the, the freedom to pursue their religious beliefs in a way that makes sense to them. Mm-hmm. Um, that in and of itself creates so much like mental anguish for people. Yes, it does. Um, and it's extremely hard to live with yourself when you can't find a way to live with yourself in light of what you believe religiously. Um, and so it's so important to like provide a multi a multiplicity of pathways for people to live (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, that also allow them to live in accordance with their faith. Um, And again, apart from coercion. And I think that's probably, um, I think one of the biggest challenges to being raised in Uh, the Christian church, because it's really so hard to parse out what is like, are you really choosing this because this is what you want? Or are you making these choices because you have been told that you will be in sin if you do anything else hmm. and you could risk God's judgment. And that's actually like really hard to like figure out, like, why am I doing the things that I am doing? Is it because I really want to, or is it because I'm scared? Hmm. And um, I yeah. think honestly, if pe- if a lot of people are honest, I think a lot of people make the choices that they make with respect to their sexuality, especially speaking of queer people in the church. I think a lot um, that were raised in traditional settings make choices based initially on fear, um, Mm. being scared of what the consequences will be. And that's, that's really hard to deal with because when you've been raised in that setting, like there's so much that has been almost programmed into you and getting away from that and healing from that can be so challenging um, to get to a point where you can actually like feel like you have some freedom, legitimate freedom Hmm. to figure out what you want to do with your life. You know, it's so, I, I often find myself struggling to communicate how deep those beliefs go to my fellow non-theists who've never experienced it. And I'm like, no, the degree to which this is reality, the degree to which God's will, it isn't abstract. It isn't something out in the sky. It is something that cuts to your very marrow. It is more real than your own flesh and blood. Yes. And I like, I have the same struggle trying to communicate that. Yeah. And, and I, I just like, unless you've experienced it, it is, it is reality. It, it mm-hmm. isn't it isn't theoretical. It isn't an idea. It is as real as the desk in front of me when you're in it. Yeah. And so and but you're exactly right. It's like informed, enthusiastic consent is really hard in that setting where it's like the threat of hell creates or or judgment or living outside of God's plan for you creates 
a stick that under which you're it's really hard to reason under which mm-hmm. it's really hard to think through yeah. your choices and your options and it everything you're saying really reminds me of um a concept that Wendy Gritter Vanderval came up with uh called generous spaciousness. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with with Wendy, but she's fantastic. I'm not so, so now I'm curious. Yeah, de- look her up and she has a book called Generous Spaciousness which is about okay. this concept and she was a huge influence on me, but particularly pertaining to LGBTQ people how the what LGBT people need in the church is generous spaciousness and mm-hmm. the ministry that should be provided to them within the church, especially if they were raised like me in yeah. where, where, you know, sexual purity and, and God's will for you is as real as the sky above you. Yeah. What people need is this compassionate, generous spaciousness of just being held in this spacious place of non-judgment yes and and the space to be able the the time and this time is also really important where it's like no this will take time you have there's no hurry to figure this out to hold that space that container Mm -hmm. for lgbt people so that they can actually have consent so that they can actually say yes or no in a way that is true to themselves. Yeah. And exactly. I and and so you know whenever whenever Christians come to me because I still I still value my <coughs> my friendship with Christians and so occasionally I will have conversations with young gay people who are struggling with their faith and and um they will come and talk to me about it and I'm always like, you don't have to figure out whether this is right or wrong mm-hmm. today. Yeah. Right now, just explore what it feels like to be gay. Yeah. Without acting on it, even. Mm-hmm. Just what is it like to be you? And yeah. explore that. Mm-hmm. You can cross the bridge of morality later. You can cross mm-hmm. the bridge of whether it's right or wrong later. For now... Yeah. Just explore what it's like to be to to have these attractions and what does that mean for you? And just explore yeah. that. And there's plenty of time and space. Yeah, I think there can be such a sense of um like feeling rushed, needing to figure yes. this out yes. right away. There's and... so much pressure. <laughs> it is so overwhelming. And yeah. I, and re- I like, yeah, go on. I, oh, okay. Well, I'll I'll say this and then um I'm curious what you were about to say. I, I definitely um, can relate to that need for spaciousness. And that mm-hmm. for me was the biggest um, thing for me that allowed mm-hmm. me to have a sense of freedom to actually approach this question, feeling as if I really like could make a choice that was not a result of fear of coercion. Um, and that was having the space. Um, and for me, what, what gave me space was being, was finding a partner and, and I'm still incredibly grateful to this day because when I was like initially trying to figure out my sexuality, I met the queer community first, um, Mm. instead of uh, dealing with that with Christians. Um, and in a lot of ways that really, really saved me because the the queer people that I encountered um, like and just I am still just so grateful for this gave me so much space Hmm. to figure myself out um, and put so little pressure on me to have to have the right answers to things and like were also super, super offended by like everything that was coming out of my mouth, but also, (laughs) (laughs) but also were like, not like not putting pressure on me to change and uh, not putting pressure on me even to like, have to like, you know, become this like raging lesbian tomorrow and like have sex and everything to accept myself Mm -hmm. like 
they were just like, you're you just whatever. Okay. <laughs> that was super offensive, but all right, whatever. We'll just kind of ignore it for now. Um, and uh, like, that was like, that was what I needed at that time. As I was trying to figure myself out was that space. I wound up, you know, uh, getting a partner from, you know, all of that and like having the space to like be in a partnership where even my yes. partner was not putting this pressure on me. Um, and even my partner was like, Hey, like we don't have to have sex. Like you figure your stuff out. That's mm. okay. Um, was like, wow. <laughs> and, you know, um, encountering that space really helped me to, uh, like let go of a lot of, I guess, the things that were like hold like holding me in chains for so long um, and have mm. more freedom to feel like I could explore all of this and like not have the weight of the world on my shoulders um, and not even have the weight of like my personal happiness and life in the balance because, you know, I have a partner, like I am happy with her, like we can mm -hmm. have a happy life together. And ultimately what I decide to believe about sex is not going to jeopardize that. Um, mm -hmm. Like that's not going to go away. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. like that, that just made such a huge difference for me, like just having the pressure off altogether so that I could really approach this question from just like, okay, I'm just going to figure this out. And you know what? It's like, if I had, if I have one thing today and change my mind tomorrow, that's okay too. Um, yeah. It's almost like everyone needs a safe word. Mm -hmm. It's like everyone needs a, needs an exit. Everyone yeah. needs the space of knowing. Everyone needs to know that they have the space and the autonomy to figure this out. Yeah. And because that was, and what I was going to say earlier was, you know, when I was in college, that was the opposite of my experience where it, and it became obsessive. I, I became like a rat just trapped, cornered where it felt like every single moment and every single inch of, of mental space was dedicated to processing my sexuality because it was so mm -hmm. urgent. Yeah. And I remember going to my therapist and just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing because I felt trapped. And then the people who really, I think, saved my life were the people who said, Stephen, I love you no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I won't think differently of you. I won't think less of you because I see how much you're struggling and you're trying to do the best you can. I, regardless of where you come on this issue of whether homosexuality is moral or not, mm -hmm. I will never think less of you and yeah. I will always love you. And it was those people who really saved my life. And yeah. Yeah. so I feel like we could talk so much more about this also we covered one of the seven ways <laughs> which, uh, yeah. but but honestly each of you know each chapter in your book um could just fill an entire conversation but uh yeah, so but this has been great i would love to have you back on again at some point because for, you know for several reasons one is a lot of people don't interact with people who disagree with them uh -huh. <laughs> and don't know and don't actually know what they're like. Yeah, it's true. And it's true. so I've, I've been having kind of more controversial, controversial guests on my show lately. Like, you know, I had Helen Pluckrose on and I've had um, a libertarian on and just all kinds of different people on, on the show lately. And the, and, and the response that I almost invariably get is surprise. Like, mm -hmm. oh my goodness, this person is so much more thoughtful and nuanced and compassionate mm -hmm. than I thought. And I'm like, yeah, you know, when you talk to people, shit changes. Like when, when we talk to people, it changes us yeah, on a fundamental level. And yeah. uh, so I really, really appreciate you kind of taking the risk of showing up on a, you know, this, this uh, you know, gay satanic deviance podcast because it's so <laughs> valuable because having having conversations with people of good faith, it, it transforms us on a fundamental level. 
and that's what I that is what I want to give to my audience is them witnessing these conversations. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I appreciate you having me and, you know, I think you're a really incredible and amazing person and I've loved like getting to talk to you and follow you on social media ever since I like ran into you the first time. And so, yeah, um, I think you're an amazing person and I'm just, I'm glad to get to chat for a little bit. Well, I appreciate that. I think you're pretty amazing too. And seriously, I would love to have you back on again sometime. Um, For people who want to find your work, where can they do that? Um, my website is Um, and my social media is at traveling nun. That's my handle Perfect. at traveling nun. And I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Facebook, not as much, but Twitter, I'm um, an Instagram pretty yeah. regularly. <laughs> You're so. a great follow on Twitter too. Um, <laughs> I, I've, I've been stalking you for a long time on Twitter. Um, Cool. I don't I don't know exactly when I first started following you, but I know well, it was we, like back a long time ago. It was a long time ago. We run in the yeah. same circles. Like we we, we do. We all know <laughs> we we like know all of the same people. We like yeah, yeah we we so it, <laughs> it yeah. was probably just a matter of time. It was just yeah. a matter of time. Cool. Well, everyone go read her book. It is called Heavy Burdens and it is very worth reading. All right, well, that is it for this show. The theme music is by Eleven D Seven. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening.